we have inherited a big house, a great world house in which we have to live together, black men and white men, Easterners and Westerners, Gentiles and Jews, Catholics and Protestants, Muslims and Hindus, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interests, who, because we can never again live without each other, must learn somehow in this one big world house to live with each other. Welcome to The World House, a podcast inspired by Martin Luther King Jr. and his vision of a just and peaceful world. I'm Dr. Claiborne Carson, director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute here at Stanford. And I'm Dr. Mira Foster, director of the Liberation Curriculum, our educational program here at the King Institute. In our last episode, we spoke about the speech that King delivered at the March on Washington in 1963. And in this episode, we are going to focus on the Nobel Peace Prize, which King accepted in December of 1964. There's a lot of things that have happened during that year. And I was wondering if we could begin just by looking at some of those events that took place in that year prior to King traveling to Oslo and receiving the prize. Well, just to summarize, I think that he, um, obviously the speech at the March on Washington is a mountaintop moment. And one of the um, patterns in King's life is that after reaching the mountaintop, there's always a valley below. And he uh, spends uh, much of 1964 uh, trying to uh, work on on a number of campaigns uh, in St. Augustine, Florida, None of these have the the prominence in his life of of the campaign in Birmingham. And so what what we see I'm searching for is what is the next mission? Uh, Where where am I going to focus my energies? He um, is able to see that Lyndon Johnson, after the assassination of, of John Kennedy, is able to push the Civil Rights Act of 1964 through Congress. This is a major victory, one of the central goals of the March on Washington. Um, After that, uh, Johnson also runs for president uh, in the 1964 election against Barry Goldwater. Uh, Martin Luther King sees Barry Goldwater, a very conservative uh, Republican, as a threat to the progress that has been made on civil rights. And he understands that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 only achieves part of the goal because it leaves out the question of voting. And he, he understands that that has to be um, a, a new goal of getting the uh, Voting Rights Act. But while he's campaigning and while he's doing a lot of this um, activity, he falls sick from exhaustion. And he's in the hospital in Atlanta uh, in October of 1964 when he learns that he's received, uh, he will receive the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, here again, he's, he's in this valley of, of exhaustion, but then gets this uh, wonderful award and Coretta and all of his colleagues gather around and celebrate this. And he feels a, a bit of guilt um, because he uh, knows that prize is really a prize for the entire movement. And uh, one of the sources of tension in his relationship with Coretta is that she wants 
Uh, the monetary part of the prize at that time, it was about $50,000, which meant a lot more back in those days. Mm-hmm. And she wants that to provide some security for their children and uh, uh, make their life a, a little bit more comfortable. King is always afraid to appear to be too affluent. He feels that that's uh, going to undermine his, his leadership. But he makes the decision it's going to be shared with all the uh, civil rights groups. And uh, he sticks with that. And, and, um, and actually, that's what happens with the prize, is that it's divided among uh, the various groups. King also knows that, uh, that his relationship with the Johnson administration may be pretty good, but he has this continuing tension with J. Edgar Hoover because of his criticisms of the FBI. So um, we can see that, that Hoover is very hostile to King, and this was exacerbated in November when King again criticizes the FBI. And Hoover responds by calling King the most notorious liar in America. And uh, so this comes out into the open. King is forced on the defensive by this. He questions whether Hoover has got too much pressure on him, maybe even suggesting that he's a a bit senile and uh, that this is why he's making these these, um, criticisms. He arranges uh, a meeting with Hoover. It doesn't really satisfy either side. Um, uh, King is, is basically says that uh, he's not critical of the FBI as a whole. It's just that they're lax in terms of enforcing uh, civil rights. So all of this is going on at the same time. He knows that he's going to go to Oslo to get this prize. And uh, I, I think that it's difficult to underestimate the impact of the prize for King and uh, his entire life. This is the peak of his popularity. Uh, He will never have the acclaim um, that he has because of the receipt of the the prize. Mm -hmm. And when he goes to Oslo, it allows him to also become something else, and that is a international leader, an internationally famous leader. He speaks in St. Paul's uh, Cathedral in London. People who are involved in a number of movements meet with him and see him as this internationally prominent uh, figure, uh, including people involved in in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. He goes on to Oslo and uh, accepts the prize. Uh, just a few anecdotes about that. Uh, you know, his uh, relationship with uh, Ralph Abernathy is, is there's some tension in that because uh, Ralph Abernathy feels that the prize should have been split between the two of them. And probably King would not have disagreed with that because he wanted to have it for the entire movement. But nonetheless, this is something that, that uh, sets up a, an incident that Coretta uh, King told me about were two parts of it. One of them was when they went to the prize ceremony and a limousine was pulled up from Martin and Coretta and the Abernathys wanted to join them and uh, they were directed to another um, car further back in the, in the caravan and there was some uh, resentment over that. But then when they get to the ceremony, 
Juanita Abernathy collapses, probably from exhaustion or whatever. And she's taken to the hospital. And Coretta has to make this decision. Do I go with Juanita to the hospital and be with her? Or do I go and watch my husband get the Nobel Peace Prize? Mm-hmm. Not that surprisingly, she decides to go and watch her husband get the Nobel Peace Prize. And I was told later on that uh, this was a, a source of tension because when she had gone to the hospital to, uh, to have Bernice, her youngest daughter, Juanita had always come to the hospital, stayed with her, went through all of that experience. And there was that feeling, well, when I needed you, you rather would rather be part of the ceremony. And uh, I, I had to go to the hospital on my own. Mm. Um, so this minor uh, thing was, you know, a, somewhat of a source of tension. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but after uh, King gets this prize, he comes back a heroic figure. And uh, he is greeted in New York at the, at the armory uh, with large crowd people cheering him. Uh, one of the, those in the crowd, uh, and this is something told to me by Dorothy Cotton, was Malcolm X, who was seated in the audience. She uh, recognized him because he had been by the SCLC headquarters. He had had a long campaign to try to get to see Martin Luther King, and, and only during that year that he finally uh, kind of corners him in, in, at the Capitol and but uh, she said that he he was there uh, although uh, malcolm later said king's got the prize we've got the problem uh, so it wasn't completely a positive attitude mm-hmm. uh, and when he gets back to atlanta the um, city leaders have a dinner for him and it's one of the most important integrated events uh, this is in early 1965 that um, you know, bringing together the black elite and the white elite in Atlanta at, at a dinner in King's honor. But King, as we get back to this theme of from the mountaintop of getting the Nobel Peace Prize to the valley of the realities back in the United States, uh, what we see is that King comes back and is determined to begin to push for a Voting Rights Act. And he is, uh, meets with Lyndon Johnson, who invites him to the White House when he returns. Uh, he says, and he's going to push for this uh, voting rights, and he's asking uh, Johnson to do it. And Johnson says, you know, look, we just got the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed. Mm-hmm. You know, in Congress to push for this so soon afterwards, uh, this is not going to be high on the agenda for 1965. And, and I think uh, King goes away from that meeting saying, well, it's not on your agenda now, but uh, we're going to put it on your agenda. Because he recognizes that the Civil Rights Act of 64 is very incomplete without voting rights legislation. Mm-hmm. And he also knows that there's a voting rights movement going on in Selma, Alabama, and that he wants to become involved in this. Now, this is an indigenous movement. Um, um, Amelia Boynton and uh, many others uh, become um, leaders of this. SNCC, a Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, has a project in Selma. 
So it's not like King is initiating this movement, but he's under a lot of pressure to come and support it. And uh, so that's um, what he's looking forward to. Mm -hmm. But also during this time, the tensions with the FBI are not over because he receives a letter that had actually been sent the previous November. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was a, a letter cooked uh, up by the FBI that, um, that they were going to expose his immoral activity. Uh, so they send this letter and um, it was meant to arrive uh, very quickly for a variety of reasons, probably that there was just so much mail after the Nobel Peace Prize that it kind of got lost in the stack. So it was not opened until January. Mm -hmm. But the letter was, um, because it was sent earlier, was, was meant to um, be opened before King went to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. And when we look at this letter, we can see what they had in mind. And that is, this was clearly a warning sent anonymously, unsigned, and uh, I'll just read a few parts of it. King, in view of your low-grade, abnormal personal behavior, I will not dignify your name with either doctor or reverend. And it goes on, uh, King, like all frauds, your end is approaching. You could have been our greatest leader. Uh, so, obviously, the person is pretending to be a black person, but we know it was, it was uh, actually composed by the FBI. Even at an early age, have turned out to be not the leader, but a dissolute, abnormal, uh, moral imbecile. And I'll just get to the end. That goes on like that. It's accompanied by a tape, by the way, recording made by the FBI of a room um, at the Willard Hotel uh, that supposedly uh, had King and a number of other black leaders there, and um, their conversation was was um, filled with sexual references. So it says, King, there's only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do this. And it says this exact number has been selected for a specific reason. Mm -hmm. We can figure out that reason, you know, that this was sent to arrive before he got the Nobel Peace Prize. It has definite practical significance. You are done. There is but one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. A clear indication that they want him to commit suicide before accepting the prize. Mm -hmm. Now, when we think of you know, how uh, desperate Hoover must have been to essentially neutralize and and get rid of King as a leader, uh, to have such a letter sent. It didn't have the impact that Hoover wanted, in part because it didn't arrive before he received the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm -hmm. But it showed King that he had a definite enemy in J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. So I guess one way of, of getting back to that notion of the mountaintop and the valley is that the mountaintop was getting the prize and all the accolades, all the applause that King got, wonderful receptions that he got in uh, New York at the White House, uh, in Atlanta with the dinner, 
But at the same time, within less than two months of getting the prize, he's in a settlement jail, mm -hmm. uh, much involved in another campaign. And, uh, and I think he suggested that himself when he talked about from the mountaintop to the valley uh, as being uh, perhaps the central theme of his life. When he gets to Oslo, um, there's two things that he does that are, I think, historically significant. One is when he accepts the prize, he says, I accept the Nobel Prize for Peace at a moment when 22 million Negroes of the United States are engaged in a creative battle to end the long night of racial injustice. I accept this award on behalf of a civil rights movement which is moving with determination and a majestic scorn for risk and danger to establish a reign of freedom and a rule of justice. He accepted this award on behalf of, of the entire movement. Perhaps equally important with the acceptance address was the lecture he gave at the University of Oslo um, afterwards, because that was a much longer speech. And I invite all of you to, to listen to the entire speech, because what we see is that King is broadening his agenda. Um, he sees himself as a civil rights leader but a civil rights leader with a broad vision for change. And that rather than simply achieving uh, civil rights reform and even voting rights, um, the movement was going to take on the issues of poverty and um, global violence and, and war. And all of these three areas of concern were going to be the focus of King's life after receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. All that I have said boils down to the point of affirming that mankind's survival is dependent upon man's ability to solve the problems of racial injustice, poverty, and war. The solution of these problems is in turn dependent upon man squaring his moral progress with his scientific progress and learning the practical art of living in harmony. I guess when people listen to the, to the speech, they will also recognize the portion that we are playing at the beginning of our podcast, which is his definition of the world house. He also addresses and talks about how we are all interconnected. So that is also a theme that comes through in that speech. He returns to all these themes that, that are going through so many of his speeches. He pulls them once again together. So I think one of the things we could say about uh, the acceptance address and the lecture he gave is that they are recognizing his broader role um, as, a, as a world leader. And I think that the, this converges with the overall theme of, of this podcast. Uh, that King is talking about the kind of, of change that is necessary in the world house. 
uh, that we've inherited. And uh, so I think that one element of, of this is that the, the lecture in particular is uh, a speech that has continuing relevance even today as we continue to um, deal, deal with King's broad agenda for change. You listen to Mira Foster and Claiborne Carson and The World House. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to find out more, visit the Liberation Curriculum on our website at kinginstitute.stanford.edu.